0: Welcome to Review the Future, the podcast that takes an in-depth look at the impact of technology on culture. I'm Ted Copper, I'm John Perry. And today we're asking the question, should we have control over our consciousness? Our guest today is Sarah Perry, who is a writer uh, who has written a book called Every Cradle is a Grave. And uh, she also runs an excellent blog at The View From Hell. I became aware of her through her Twitter, which is also uh, at The View From Hell, But uh, Sarah, do you want to tell us a little bit about your background and why you write about this stuff?
1: Oh, sure. Uh, I started writing about suicide after, uh, in law school, I was a patient advocate. And that means uh, someone who would help people who were locked up in mental hospitals if they wanted to get out. And the state gives them a right to a hearing. And I would help them uh, prepare for the hearing and and argue their case in front of an administrative law judge. Uh, right there in the mental hospital. And so that was my first exposure to, to some of these issues. And I, unfortunately, a few years later, was locked up myself in a mental hospital. And that having having both sides of the experience, both being... Kind of on the professional side and on the the consumer side, they call it when you're <laughs> when you're actually a patient. So it's kind on. of the euphemism. That's a dark word. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I know consumer of services you don't necessarily maybe want. So. <laughs> Um, well, yeah,
0: that makes perfect sense why you would get involved in in this uh, research, having had both uh, both sides of it. That's really interesting. Yeah. So um, today, I think, uh, since some of our listeners might not even be really familiar with the concepts that we're going to discuss, I want to just go through and quickly give some definitions. We're going to talk about control of consciousness. And when we talk about that, I think a, a large part of that is the the right to die. So basically... Mm-hmm. The um, right know, to
1: have no consciousness. Right,
0: of course. The right, the right to turn it off, basically. To hit uh-huh. the off switch. Uh, and, and then also uh, under that rubric is like the right to alter your consciousness, right? Through, say, drugs yeah. or other means.
1: Yeah, a lot of different things.
0: Uh, and also, as we always do on this podcast, we like to really push things out into the far future. So we're yeah. going to talk about the rights to control consciousness in a, in a realm of simulation, uh, which may mm-hmm. be available in the future as well. But let's jump right into this right to die idea, because I think a lot of people are just under, I think, some misconceptions, right, about where we are today with suicide, Uh and what you call suicide prohibition. And I think that's accurate. So let's talk about just like the big question, is suicide allowed? Is it legal?
1: Okay, Uh, yeah, I think there's a there's a common misconception that suicide is legal, because you can't really prosecute somebody for committing suicide, especially if they are successful. And of course, we don't we don't consider attempted suicide to be a crime anymore. They used they actually used to hang people for attempting suicide, which is which is a little surprising to people now. So suicide in itself isn't a crime anymore, although it did used to be in the English common law system. But uh, that doesn't mean that it's legal in the sense that we usually mean that it's something that we're allowed to do. Uh, if people are caught trying to commit suicide, they aren't prosecuted, but they're usually sent to a mental hospital uh, against their will. The methods that are most comfortable for people to use to commit suicide are illegal because of the, the war on drugs. Um, so the the only methods that are used where, where a limited amount of suicide is legal, such as Oregon, uh, they use drugs that are illegal to to obtain for most people. Also, it's, it's illegal to help someone commit suicide. So right. it's about, it's the only, the only act I'm aware of, where doing it is technically legal, but no one can help you do it. So imagine if abortion was legal, but no one could help you.
2: <laughs> well, and then a couple of other interesting points, like the fact that this prohibition is enforced not by the law enforcement community, but by the medical community, right? So
1: exactly. it's, it's illegal
2: in the sense that you kind of go to jail, but that jail looks more like a <laughs> mental ward, right? Uh, exactly.
1: And kind of, kind of changing what, the role, what we think of a doctor, someone who's helping us and that they're... Uh, providing a service that that we want for us to get better and instead kind of turning them into police, which is it's uncomfortable for me to think of a doctor that way.
2: You mentioned that the the best ways to commit suicide aren't always legal. What are the means that people use, and what are the ones that would be preferable to others and which ones are illegal?
1: So the the most effective, as I mentioned, the one that is uh, is used by states and countries that allow assisted suicide. Are always either barbiturates or or the uh, synthetic opiates like fentanyl, uh, where someone can consume a relatively small amount, either injected or or swallowed, and it's not going to cause them a lot of pain. They're not going to potentially survive the the attempt and be brain damaged or something. So those are the. It's weird to talk about something that's going to kill you as being safe, but a relatively safe method. Uh, that's not going to cause unwanted effects.
0: To clarify, it's relatively painless and relatively effective, right? That's what we're basically yes, saying about it? Right.
1: Okay. Exactly. Got it. And most of the means, other than drug overdose that are available, are pretty, really unpleasant. They're things <laughs> like uh, like hanging oneself, that's a fairly common method. Things like, like cutting arteries, uh, really violent methods, shooting oneself, those are situations where it's legal to obtain the means for it, but they're very unpleasant methods that um, we wouldn't want people we love to have to go through those things. Uh, you know, we don't want them to die, perhaps, but we certainly don't want them to to have to do those kinds of things. People talk about, well, there's lots of tall buildings you can jump off of. I don't know how, I suppose, <laughs> they're, they're, that is fairly effective. They're actually, it's, it's scary how not effective that is. There's one study about a a very tall bridge, I think it was 60 meters tall, that had a, a 3% survival rate of people jumping off of it. So even the really dangerous things, that uh, really violent methods still don't work all the time. Um, gunshot to the head has less than 80%. Effectiveness. So, more than twenty percent of people who shoot themselves in the head end up surviving.
2: Not to mention those of us which are living around these people in the city, <laughs> say where they might be jumping off buildings, would Indeed.
1: probably prefer not Indeed. to live in
2: such an environment. Where yeah, it, where it's like yeah, a right, the, yeah. the
1: effects. The the effects of the suicide prohibition are not only on people who want to die, but people around them. Um, sure. Situations where people try to people people commit suicide by say jumping in front of a train. And the poor train driver uh, basically lives with that for the rest of his life that he's been forced to commit this act, and it's just because the you know people involved are desperate and have no other way of of doing
0: it. Right, not to mention all of the commuters trying to get to work. It's uh, indeed. Yeah, I mean, it's a big yeah. hassle. Or it's you know, even if you successfully say hang yourself in your home. Uh, your loved one still has to find your body, right? Indeed. Yeah,
1: the the choice between them not knowing where you are or this horrible scene of suddenly finding your your deceased body, yeah.
0: I mean, and just to hammer this home, if you are, you know, mentally competent and you tell your loved one oh, I'm going to hang myself later, mm-hmm. then that's a good they- way to get locked up. Basically, right, they'll get you locked up, they or they very well can, and they might feel obligated to, given the, the state of our culture. So uh, you basically are forced to sneak around. So moving on from that, I guess uh, I think it's worth making the argument for a lot of people who are probably listening and thinking, well, of course you're not allowed to commit suicide. Uh, suicide sounds bad. You probably shouldn't do it. So should we have the right to die? Is this something that, uh, that we can defend? I, I, obviously, you spent a lot of time defending it.
1: I do. I also, at the outset, want to say that I, I read a lot of Catholic thinkers, and I do take them very seriously in terms of making sure that that all humans have a sort of sacred value. And I have many Catholic friends. There are many people like Friar Aidan Kavanaugh is one of my one of my heroes in terms of writing. And I don't want to only make the case for the the right to die without saying that having, encouraging the right to die or saying that we do have the right to die, one possibility is that that causes people to feel like they're obligated to die, Uh, people who may not want to, but if we have that right, it's sort of, there's there's sort of the slippery slope idea. And I take that seriously. One of, one of the philosopher J. David Velleman's arguments is that having a choice is not necessarily good for us, that often we may prefer not to have choices rather than have those choices. So...
0: Um, yeah, I did read your response to Velman's um argument, and in the response, for those who haven't read it yet, we'll link to it. You basically show that the value proposition determines the outcome of the argument that if you value life, then giving somebody uh-huh. the choice to end their life is a net harm. But if you don't value life, then the opposite is true. And to me that that made the argument pretty weak. <laughs> I have to say <laughs> I, I i i I feel like. Whenever your position in argument is let's restrict choices, you've got a pretty hard burden of proof to, uh, to obtain.
1: Velleman also argues that we should set the bar in favor of life because he says that it makes no sense to say that I matter as a person if I'm also going to end my life, that my, my right to any kind of rights, my right to be treated as a person is, is contingent on me existing And he wants to make the move, which I think is interesting, uh, that, well, if I don't want to exist anymore, then how can I say that I have any rights? What I think the error here is saying that the length of life is equivalent to the value of life and that wanting to continue forever in time or continue as long as possible in time uh, is the only way to value something. And I think it's almost as silly as the idea that going as far in space as possible is the ultimate value or Having having as many people as possible is the ultimate value. Uh, it's it's something that there there are other ways to think about valuing human beings than just keeping them alive as long as possible and including ourselves that we could we could easily value ourselves think that that all human beings have sacred value and yet want to end our lives.
2: Let's go through like some of the the more like casual anti-suicide yes. <laughs> arguments that people might make because you know, absolutely. I don't think the average person is thinking about, you know, a right to die as as a good thing necessarily. I mean, Mm -hmm. I think, I think probably everybody sort of understands the the extreme euthanasia situations of, you know, you're in a hospital, you're never going to have quality of life again, maybe to end it would be the best thing. And I think everybody sort of is probably on board with that. But when you talk Mm -hmm. about an otherwise healthy individual who just wants to end their life, suicide looks like such a bad thing, I think, well, partially because of the people around them, right, and how if somebody commits suicide, it affects their friends and their relatives. And I mean, what do you yes. say to the fact that you know suicide is is a harm to those who of us who go on living around that person?
1: Uh, absolutely, the the idea that because that suicide is selfish, often uh, because it's it's such a harm to the people left behind, people's relatives and friends. Certainly, it is a harm. I think that in other contexts. Other than suicide, we tend to look at the same harm and say that people have a right to do those harms. Things like taking away one's company, or not even even cutting off one's family and not speaking to them again, is essentially a similar harm to suicide, but is not seen as as impermissible. One way to think about the harm of suicide is that everyone dies, and we can't we aren't we aren't immortal at this point. The the uh, futuristic scenarios haven't come into play, mm-hmm. uh, but everyone dies, and what suicide is doing is making that sooner. So the harms of death are there anyway. Uh, suicide is a way of moving that up in time, and so if you if you want to be kind of mathematical about it, it's it's taking away a number of years, probably of company of the person. Of knowing they're alive, even of of potentially their support, so that that is a harm. But it's similar to harms that we'd ordinarily think are okay. Like we generally think people have the right to uh, leave a relationship, to move across the country, or even to just not have contact with someone anymore. Uh, and those are those are similar to the harms of suicide. I think that the the fact that suicide is viewed as especially tragic is partially because of our cultural attitudes towards suicide, that it's something that's uh, a failing, the friend somehow should have known, the family should have somehow known and stopped it, rather than being viewed as one of many kinds of deaths.
0: Right, um, right. Like mm-hmm. um, the the view that suicide is preventable in all cases is sort of what yeah. you're talking about,
1: right? And and should be prevented in all cases.
2: Right. Both, both, uh, yeah. both good to prevent and possible to prevent in both cases. Isn't what makes suicide different from say, you know, moving away from your family uh, mm. is the fact that suicide once committed is non-reversible, right? I mean, mm. potentially with these other things, people can make bad choices with their life and we all kind of accept that people often do uh, mm. and that they hurt people around them. But there's always the, possibility to to reverse that and then you know suicide is so final right isn't that part of the reason that people are more uncomfortable with it
1: usually what what we think about with the harms of suicide are the harms of the the tragic death of people you know f- knowing with finality they'll never see the person again what we tend not to weigh is the harms of that person continuing to live that tends to sort of not count because it's so final and the more you add up all of those days that a person is suffering when without without wanting to live, uh, that you know whether it's whether it's medical or psychological or anything else sort of existential, uh, those are a harm and those do count, and um, almost any decision has some kind of finality to it. Um, If we were if we were not able to make any kind of decision because we might change our mind in the future, I think we wouldn't be able to make contracts. We wouldn't be able to get married. Uh, Those are those are obviously more undoable than suicide. But weighing harms and and benefits for the future and being able to make final decisions based on that usually is part of our part of what we're able to do.
0: Uh, that's interesting. And it brings up to me another uh, thing that I read in your writing, which is this idea of, is life a gift or a burden? Right? Uh, mm-hmm. We have culturally an idea that life is a gift to be cherished. And certainly, <laughs> I uh, regard my own personal life as, um, as a gift. Uh, but I think it is totally reasonable and understandable that that's not everyone's perspective. And if life is a gift, then I think it follows that we'd want to really aggressively intervene to make sure people take as much of that gift as they are going to get. Um, <laughs> but if it's not, then all of a sudden, it starts to feel like something else,
1: right? The idea that life is a gift is almost sort of a sacred idea. And I don't mean that pejoratively. I mean, it's, it's something that's probably very adaptive and healthy for us to believe. And... It, believing that especially being grateful for other people's lives and encouraging them to be to have that attitude um is is kind of it seems kind of kind and humane that of course we want you around um we want you in the future and i and people frequently come to me and and talk to me about suicide when they when they are suicidal and i myself find find myself expressing the same sentiments that i will affirm that they have a right to, to commit suicide. But usually, it's, you know, I hope they don't. And I think that's separate from the moral calculus to some degree. What, what we hope for socially, uh, what we believe in a sort of sacred way is different from the cold analysis of, of whether it's morally right or wrong. And even though someone is still valuable in the sense of we still care about them and want the best for them, uh, they may be experiencing a lot more suffering than they're than their getting out of life, than is worth it. Often people think about suicide being selfish as if the suicide has an obligation to their their family, their community. But we don't talk too much about the obligation that the, the community might have to that person and that they might be failing that. And I think physical pain is a big problem, but emotional pain might be even worse. And the the pain of of a lack of social belonging is often what's associated with suicide rather than physical pain or some other kind of pain. Uh, And so I take that seriously. I take uh, that kind of pain very seriously. And living through that kind of pain, living through uh, emotional suffering as well as physical pain, uh, can in some cases be not worth it. And it may be the case that the sort of expected value is not worth uh, the expected cost in suffering. Uh, And I trust individual people more than the society at large to make that determination.
2: I I think some people probably have in their mind uh, one possible narrative, which is, you know, suppose a person who... Otherwise is maybe not a a depressed person whose mental health is generally pretty good, whose mood Mm -hmm. is generally pretty high. That person then encounters, you know, let's say this is sort of a contrivance I'm I'm giving. But I think this is Mm -hmm. maybe the model people have that person who's otherwise going to live a healthy and happy life Mm -hmm. encounters a bunch of external disasters. You know, maybe they go Uh bankrupt. Maybe they lose a spouse. Um, And for whatever reason, they become very intensely depressed and perhaps suicidal for a period of time where they're facing this sort of, you know, emotional valley. And maybe on Mm -hmm. the other side of that valley, there's this, you know, happiness plateau that they could get to if they could just ride it out. And I feel like Mm -hmm. that's this type of situation I think people have in mind when they're like, well, the state at that point could intervene or (laughs) friends and family could intervene and, you know, help this person to get through this valley Because on the other side is this, you know, paradise if they can just, you know, find the resolve from society at large to get through it. I mean, what do you say to that? Is that just people wrong to have that narrative? I
1: think think it's reasonable evolutionarily that we might react that way, that uh, when terrible things happen, we may sort of become self-destructive in order to get other people's help, to get them to get us through this hard time. Um, so it, it makes sense as, as as a signal that people are kind of sending off, um, and that their desire to die may not be something that's going to be there forever. Um, so people people in that state may not have uh, the best judgment. They may not uh, really understand that things will get better. They may be just self destructive for for ways that they for reasons they can't control. Uh, but I think that the suicide prohibition is not the way to deal with that. Um, I think that the suicide prohibition probably causes a lot of suicide attempts by people who are who who haven't clearly thought about it and don't necessarily want to die. Um, I think that because we have, I call it sometimes the fantasy of rescue. Uh, mm-hmm. The suicide prohibition gives us this idea that if we uh, if we attempt suicide, then we'll be rescued and we'll be a uh, sort of precious victim rather than uh, being, you know, not, not given any attention. And I think that that tempts people to, even if they don't necessarily want to die or, or aren't 100% sure they want to die, to, to harm themselves in some way uh, that may or may not be lethal. And, and I'm sure that some people die that way, you know, not hoping they'll be rescued. Uh, and some people are rescued who are glad they were rescued, and other people are sort of quote rescued who didn't want to be rescued. Uh, so I think the suicide prohibition is is causing people to to harm themselves, hoping to be rescued. When if that possibility wasn't there, they'd have to think much more much more seriously about harming themselves. Um, they they maybe wouldn't be as tempted if we didn't have this this cultural phenomenon of forcibly rescuing people. Uh, and people who genuinely want to die would be able to do that without without risking forced hospitalization and things like that. I do think that if a community can sort of get together and help someone who's in a who's in a bad place, that's someone that's somewhat different from the state stepping in and saying you get to go to the hospital.
0: Oh yeah, definitely.
1: Yeah. So so I I talk about non non coercive suicide prevention, um things like generally general, uh, social belonging and taking care of people, uh, all completely on board with that. I think that's, I think that's great. Uh, but coercive suicide prevention, I think actually probably causes some number of suicides, uh, and, and prevents the wrong suicides in addition to possibly preventing some suicides that, uh, That wouldn't otherwise occur. Right. I can Um, see
0: that. mm -hmm. Like if there were sort of ethical suicide parlors, a la the uh, uh, welcome to the monkey house. um, Yeah.
1: Then it wouldn't be a strong signal to sort of make a suicidal gesture. Right.
0: If I were a depressed person who was hoping for help, I probably would not go to one of those places because I'd know with reasonable certainty that I
1: would actually die. Exactly. Um,
2: and it wouldn't be people, like...
1: People would just have to yeah. take it much more seriously.
2: Exactly. You couldn't make a dramatic statement by just going to the suicide clinic and signing some papers and yeah. getting handi- handed your, like, barbiturates or whatever. Yeah, wouldn't,
1: yeah. yeah. exactly. So, and, uh, and of course, you know, what else will people do? Uh, will they, maybe people will continue to uh, to harm themselves. I don't necessarily think it would, it would stop suicidal signaling in general, especially if it's something that's sort of... Uh, a, a evolved characteristic of ways that we deal with with suffering and failed belonging but I think treating people like adults if they are adults and <laughs> and dealing with things seriously and, and rationally is better than kind of imagining suicide is always the product of mental illness and and always trying to stop it that 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 is is not necessarily as heroic as the the rescue narrative would would like us to think
0: right right so that I think Brings us into the next thing I want to talk about pretty well, which is where are we these days with this issue? Because this is something like, as you mentioned, there are some states like Oregon and there are some countries outside the United States where there are some limited rights uh, to physician assisted suicide or other kinds of things that do allow some people in certain circumstances mm-hmm. um to, to avail themselves of this option? And, and um, can we just like sort of summarize to the best that you know what what's, um, what's going on these days? Where are we at?
1: Well, for, in, in the United States, as, as you said, there are a few states that allow uh, physician-assisted suicide for people who have certain kinds of terminal illnesses as certified by a doctor, um, not available to people in general, not available to people... Who don't have the the particular kind of of illness that the that their statute wants to see uh, and um, and not available to residents of most states. Mm-hmm. To the extent that suicide is legal anywhere, it's generally medicalized, treated as as uh, there there has to be a sort of medical diagnosis before right before it's allowed. So and, so how much of
0: that do you think is um, that medicalization is just you know, getting around the crappy government system. And uh, I mean, you know, you could say the same thing about a lot of recreational drug use, for example, we'll get into altered states in a minute. But uh, Um, everybody knows that, you know, to the extent that recreational drugs have been legalized in America, they're almost entirely um, medicalized as well. And uh, to some extent, that's just, I think, a workaround of the political system to give people access to something without, you know, a politician having to go back on a campaign promise or that sort of thing. Uh, But to some extent, it also reflects, you know, a a view that um, that there's a proper time and place to be using Mm -hmm. these things. Um, In your in your opinion, I mean, I I don't know the answer to this, so I'm just curious what you think. Is, Is that the same thing here? Are we seeing suicide uh, assisted suicide get um, medicalized because that's the way it can get done? Or are we seeing it because of, uh, because that's, you know, that's what we really think it, uh, that it should be only available, say to someone with a, a horrific terminal. I think, uh, I
1: think disease. both. I think um, the, if if you look at opinion polls, uh, suicide America, a vast majority of Americans still believe that suicide in general is immoral. Um, it's only the the small exception of, uh, of terminally ill people who uh, who are still still competent but want to die? That there's any support for allowing allowing them to have the right to die. So, yes, it's it's a way of of sort of allowing a an exception to the general rule, uh, sort of compassionate exception for the people we can most understand who would want to have that right. But I think most people can most people can at least empathize that if they were very seriously ill, terminally ill, losing their Uh, their ability to control their bodily functions and, and in extreme pain, they would want the right to die. Um, But I I don't think that empathy usually extends or, or is likely to extend in in the future to, uh, to anybody. Right. Um, And I think that's the, that's sort of the sacredness thing I was talking about, that it's a, it's not necessarily a rational moral framework, but it's a, it's a real moral framework that, uh, that life is, is sort of sacred and that suicide is a, is a violation of the sanctity of life. I think that's the that's the normal view of things.
2: Now, I I infer, obviously, that you don't consider suicide to be inherently immoral, although in at least one case, uh, I think you do, right? If I understood your yes. book correctly, you, you mentioned the case of a parent committing suicide when they have children that they are supposed to yeah. be taken care of.
1: In my view, uh, having a child is a way of saying life is basically good it's good enough that i'm willing to inflict it on someone else and so i think i think suicide is kind of going back on that promise at that point sure that you've created a human being and now you've decided that life isn't worth living so what were you doing in the first place and and this is that's it's sort of my sort of philosophical consistency argument i don't necessarily think that that is going to solve all suicidal parents problems i'm sure there are situations where Uh, where it would be ethically permissible. Uh, But generally, that's that's one line that I that I try to draw that.
2: But your line, of course, is far more permissive than the average person's. Oh, definitely. Most people would be generally against almost all suicide.
1: Yeah, I, I would say generally, there's a right to suicide with fairly few exceptions. I don't expect that to be be reflected in a legal right in a democracy where things are determined by by the values of of the majority.
0: So given that this is the current legal status that we have a sort of very limited, you know, highly sort of morally charged uh, access to this uh, medicalized version of suicide for some folks, and there are, I, I think there are some, you know, legal battles to try to expand that in some places, but it doesn't seem like it's moving very quickly or very much. Um... There's,
1: there's not really a constituency. Right. <laughs> so. Well, of course. yeah.
0: <laughs> Hard to get people who uh, have committed suicide to show up to vote. So, exactly. So, um, maybe in Chicago, uh, but uh, <laughs> they... Um, I was wondering whether uh, this is something we always talk about on this podcast, whether you think there might be technological solutions to this problem, like ways that we could provide, you know, cheap, uh, decentralized, hard to ban technologies.
1: Oh, yeah, definitely. Bitcoin, Bitcoin and Silk Road is is the disruptor. <laughs> uh before, the issue is always, how can you supply this particular item when it's obviously going to be a one-time interaction? So <laughs> traditional drug channels or traditional black markets and drugs are not going to work for, for suicide anymore. It, actually, in the 60s, barbiturates were really commonly prescribed, so it was a much easier matter at the time, but now it's the, the drugs are pretty rare, and certainly people aren't going to be able to do a one-time pill, but... Very interestingly, just in the past few years, that's, that's kind of changed. It's still not legal, but the, um, using the darknet service Tor to access the um, darknet markets, they call them, uh, such as the now defunct Silk Road and, and the many uh, markets that sprung up in Silk Road's absence, um, using the cryptocurrency Bitcoin, people can now do a one-time transaction to buy the exact drugs practically if not legally so i think it's a it's a huge change and that's that's one of the reasons i dedicated my book to the to the dread pirate roberts
0: <laughs> yeah that's amazing um so uh going forward uh i think it might be a cool time now that we've sort of covered what what the right to die is and why we mm-hmm. why some people think you ought to have it and uh, and how morally complex a uh, an issue it really is with how this might uh resonate in the future as um as things get more and more technologically advanced. Now, one reason that I strongly support this, being a personal proponent of enhanced longevity, and I (laughs) intend to live forever if I can, and I'm going to, you know, or die trying, as uh, Bill Andrews says, and uh, I strongly, you know, despite uh, the burdens of life, I want to keep doing it. That said, I think it's absolutely imperative for people like me who, who want technology to enhance our, our our ability to live, to support the right to die. Because to me, it's um just logically consistent. It's two sides of the same coin if you're going absolutely. to artificially yeah. enhance your longevity beyond... What nature will give you, and then you ought to be able to artificially cut it short. One really extreme version of that is if you have a death prohibition, a suicide prohibition in your <laughs> society, and mm-hmm. then you also have excellent nanomedicine, you could mm-hmm. create a hell, a, a, non, a non-ending, <laughs> open-ended uh, suffering um life form that would just go on and on indeed
1: right? indeed and i i also want to mention i i completely support uh, longevity research and yeah a number one of my friends wrote uh the anti-deathist fact for <laughs> in our, our group blog and definitely i think the the necessity of death is is one of the harms of life and uh it's the worst thing i can think of yeah. <laughs> but,
2: yeah. but uh like, so I'm,
1: I'm on i'm on your side there go ahead
2: well, no, I mean, I was just going to say the same thing a different way, which is that the one element of death that I want to preserve, and sounds like you guys would agree, is the escape hatch part of it. Right. Yeah. It's The, the involuntary yeah. part is is the bad part of it, and the finality <laughs> and all of that, but the fact that it's an escape hatch that you always have, should things get yeah. bad is kind of nice. And that's the thing you want to keep, I think, even in a world where you could live very, very long.
0: Right. Not just because that preserves your quality of life, but also preserves like your autonomy to a certain degree. You can't be tortured forever because you will eventually pass out and die um, Indeed, but that's not necessarily true in, in a speculative future <laughs> yeah. where we have really I, I high quality that nanomedicine that they could inject into you and it will sit there, just keeping you alive. Um, it
1: reminds me of in the in the Quran. Uh, they talk about the the description of hell in the Quran. Your skin is constantly regenerated, so it can be burned off again over and over. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> and I, I don't think this is a this is an argument. So I'm about to make an argument. I don't think this is an argument. Uh, against longevity research but i think it's important to be aware that we we do have life extension technology now sure. and it is sometimes forced on people without their consent so things like vaccines i'm pro vaccine totally i think it's i think uh, <laughs> infectious disease is one of the worst parts of being human that we have made huge strides against but vaccines are uh our life extension technology and certainly babies don't consent to that so uh it's an interesting an interesting thing to think about um more importantly, end-of-life care uh, is often imposed on people who are not uh, mentally competent con- to consent to it. Things like feeding tubes and uh, respirators may be given to people who don't necessarily want it or where it's difficult to tell if they want it or not. And so I think it's reasonable to be to, to think there's precedent for uh, life extension technology being sort of forced on people and... And our, our vision of, of hell worlds is, is maybe a little more realistic.
0: Oh, absolutely. You know, the only silver lining on our current situation is that none of those technologies are terribly effective. So, uh, <laughs> you know, yes, they can yeah, prolong <laughs> suffering, but only for, say, 20 years. You know, yeah. The best case scenario, yeah. you know, they can't do it indefinitely for hundreds or thousands of years. Right.
1: Indeed.
0: Yeah, I think part of the... Um, the reality of enhanced longevity is that we're going to be experimenting with this for some time, and there's going to be experiments that don't work. And we're going to have bad side effects or bad effects of certain Mm -hmm. treatments. Uh, So again, if you don't have that legal right to flick the switch and turn it off, this thing that I think of as being an unalloyed good at the end of the day, uh, giving people the option to live longer, healthy lives, could cause all kinds of suffering. And I think we have to make sure that as we do that, we try to push for these rights uh, as well. Yeah,
1: thinking about people having the right to to change their experiences and also potentially to turn off the experiences is the the off button, as you say.
0: Right, right. And it's the choice at the end of the day that matters, isn't it? I mean, to me, uh, the reason I think people should have the ability to do radical longevity enhancement or cognitive enhancement is the same reason that I think they should be able to do self-deletion or self-retardation if they want. If you want to make yourself stupider. Yeah. Uh, I, Uh,
1: I there's a particular lobotomy I can imagine having the dorsal prefrontal (laughs) cortex.
0: (laughs) Okay. So I want to talk about one more thing before we move on from right to die, which is, um, how does this argument change or does it change at all? Um, because I'm not sure that I even have a position on this. If we live in a technological world where dissatisfaction of all kinds, uh, is curable. Uh, right. Because uh, nowadays, if we keep somebody alive, and they're, let's say, clinically depressed, they have low mood, we are dooming them to suffer. But uh, what about, uh, you know, the ideas of like David Pierce, he was our guest last time. And he was talking to us about, um, you know, his project to end suffering in the sentient world, the hedonic uh-huh, imperative. Including insects. Yes. Uh, Yes, yes. Yes. he he goes all the way down. But starting off with just, um, you know, human beings selecting children for higher hedonic set points, and then in the future, possibly Mm -hmm. medicating ourselves with some future drug that would cure the dissatisfaction that might be at the heart of all suicide attempts. Does that change the argument at all?
1: I think that would be great. (laughs) I think there would be much much less of a need for suicide. I think that in that world, the harms of suicide would also be much, much less because everybody would be happy anyway. I bet it would be a lot rarer. I think there's less of a case for a, for a right to die if life is pretty much guaranteed to be to be subjectively great a little creepy, but I don't, I don't think the <laughs> argument is as strong in that case, in that world.
0: That's my uh, gut reaction as well, is that it, it does weaken the moral argument to some extent. Uh, so I want to move on now and talk a little bit about other kinds of controlling your consciousness. Turning it on and off is obviously the most fundamental control of your consciousness yeah. <laughs> that you can have. But on top of that, I think it's less controversial to say that you do have some right to control the, the state of your consciousness, like, mm-hmm. for example, through the use of drugs or
1: other things. Robert Robert Nozick and um, Robert Nozick is famous for the Experience Machine thought experiment, and the Experience Machine is uh, you can enter this virtual reality world, and you will have a, a hallucination within the virtual virtual reality world that will seem completely real of anything you ever want, any kind of accomplishment or experience that you would want but it won't really be real it will all be in this sort of virtual reality world and he, he assumes that people will generally say no we don't want to get into that experience machine actually people there people are on both sides many people would want to get into the experience machine and and many people would not nozick says that people wouldn't because we care about things being real and not just uh, mental states i tend to see realness uh, the idea of realness as basically uh, its own mental state but people, people vary a lot about this. Um, so that's interesting. The, how, how much uh, does something higher than just mental states exist or matter? Um, and using things like drugs are basically admitting that we're just going to change the mental state directly somewhat uh, outside of anything that's real. So people who would, be, who would not get in the experience machine might also not want to to use drugs or something like that and might want people not to be able to do that at all, for whatever reason.
0: I That's interesting to me, because I, of course, when I heard that, I read that uh, experience machine thing in your book, and <laughs> immediately was like, well, I'd get in there, you know, I mean, I know. <laughs> uh, uh, we had a podcast recently with, uh, we were talking about virtual reality, and uh, our guest basically described VR technology that's coming down the pike as being the democratization of experience, you know, they essentially, I mean, they're not very high quality, they're just audio visual, and there's a lot of Parts of your, you know, sensory input they're not doing, but they are
2: experience machines to some degree. Yeah. Um,
0: yeah. And, and I, I find that very compelling.
2: Well, when I also like in terms of the issue of realness and, you know, sort of hacking our own uh, life uh, and treating mm-hmm. our own life like it's an experience machine that we can turn the dials mm-hmm. on with drugs. Um, I mean, that is certainly how people talk about drugs, right? I mean, people talk about drug experiences as if that wasn't really them. Like, oh, that mm-hmm. wasn't me. I was just drunk that night. Yes, that was, <laughs> right. That wasn't uh-huh. really like, the real talking. me, right. right? So people do preserve this divide. Many people, I think, of like uh-huh. the real and the not real. Um, yeah. Now, if you had it, that's because I think our drugs wear off. If we had, you know, a twenty-four-seven <laughs> experience machine, I think that changes. Mm-hmm. And it, you, you mean know. Twitter?
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I, and um, the other thing is just kind of our brains. Like you mentioned, the the senses. Our brains, uh, what they're telling us, our vision and our hearing and our smell and things like that are basically our brain is an experience machine. It's not giving us full access to real reality. It's giving us a, a hallucination of reality, some, some amount of contact with some amount of the phenomena that are going on. Right. So I think it's a, uh, we're already sort of in one whether we like it or not. It's just a matter of what level we're going to be on, how much control we're going we're to have over the experiences that, that we have.
0: Yeah, that seems right to me. And it seems a general good to give people more control rather than less. Mm -hmm. But uh, I think this is relevant, because uh, what you're talking about definitely does play into the current state of the drug war, right, which is an issue Mm -hmm. for right to die. But it's an issue more generally, if you want to alter your Mm -hmm. consciousness with drugs, there are a couple of culturally approved drugs that are legal that you're allowed to use in a lot of different contexts. And then, Uh uh, and they're regulated, obviously, to minimize harms to society, and we all understand why that is, but uh, then there is a whole giant class of, of drugs that are prohibited, um, such as the barbiturates that people need to commit suicide, but also such as, you know, things that are impossible to OD on, like marijuana. Um, <laughs> I mean, there's the whole range. So it's interesting that those things uh, remain such a, a difficult thing for our political system to deal with, that we can't just sort of acknowledge that people as subjective beings have the right to, um, to turn those dials themselves.
2: Well- I mean, when people say, okay, there's there's real experience, you know, which is the sober experience, it's the the non-hallucinatory experience. Well, it's
0: also the present moment experience, right? And not in memory. But it's
2: also, I think what people are really saying is it's the shared experience, right? It's the one mm-hmm. where the other mm-hmm. sentient beings are all on the same page, right? Mm-hmm. Like if I'm in my mm-hmm. private VR situation or if I'm like just yeah. lying on a street. It's not
1: real because it's not social. Right, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Whereas whereas a a social VR like Twitter um, (laughs) makes uh, seem it seems more real or real, at least in the way that we care about. So sharing our experience machine with other minds maybe makes it uh, real in a way that everybody can understand. And uh, um, maybe that's true of drugs as well. I definitely think we we lack good drug rituals. And that's true for the legal drugs as well as the illegal ones that uh, it's a human universal. All human groups have have uh, that have ever been studied have mind altering uh, chemicals or practices, so meditation kinds of practices. Right. Uh, but they, but it's in no culture is it just like a free for all. There's always sort of uh, rituals and rules and particular times and places and and practices that uh, that go into doing it. And I think we're really lacking that. So that's it's one of the things that that I hope for is is as Uh, Marijuana certainly is becoming uh, becoming more legal, at least becoming legal in some states Mm -hmm. and and legal medically Uh, as that uh, as we have more of that in our society. I'd like to see uh, better social ways of using that um, better social rituals for drug use that are uh, that are happy and fulfilling and uh, not dangerous or or sad.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Right, well, and it's it's the same thing looking forward to, to VR, right? I mean, I think society will probably be very welcoming and accepting of, like, a metaverse where we all participate and right. have fantasies together, but then the person who has the, like, loner universe where they're by themselves, you know.
0: Right, dealing with AIs all day in, yeah, a, is in maybe, a simulated
2: environment, they're going to be seen as sad, maybe. Stigmatized.
0: or, or stigmatized. Yeah. yeah. If it's just Facebook inside the Oculus Rift, no one's going <laughs> to argue with that. It's going to yeah that social proof thing I think is really powerful and you're absolutely yes. right about that. Yes. And um uh, may I quickly mention I know that it's not just um ritual practices or meditation or drugs that can alter your state so there's all kinds of things um food oh, can yeah. alter your state yeah. risk like gambling obviously is a major yeah. way to alter your state Love, exercise. Sure, emotions. (laughs) uh, yeah. uh, uh, But anyway, we don't think too much about trying to prevent people from falling in love or or running so far that they uh, hallucinate. So it's interesting that some categories of state altering are prohibited whilst others are not. I want to move on to the the last uh, section, which is like, let's talk about simulation. Let's talk about if um, if we accept the arguments that we've been making that people do have a right to affect their consciousness in a world w- that's either like the VR world that's coming soon. Uh, or like the far future uh, sort of, you know, nano-enabled metaverse that we can all jack into that's sort of, uh, you know, in people's uh, imagination of something that might be coming.
1: Yeah, I often, one one issue, this is kind of tangentially related, is that I think about with this is, the ethics of simulating intelligent beings ourselves, yes. of mm-hmm. the ones that we might create. And yes. uh, Greg Egan talks about this briefly in Incandescence that the they the post-humans sort of agree you're, you're not supposed to simulate uh sentient beings at too too close of a grain so that that's sort of ethically questionable to do right um and yeah I've i thought about this if if our if our universe is a simulation what does that say about the ethics of the people who created it and <laughs> if we're going to create create simulations within us uh within our world uh what does this look like and and what kinds of lives are are okay to create.
0: Yeah, one thing is the ethics of specifically making copies of yourself, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, uh, Who has the moral authority to, first off, make a copy? Uh, Like, just assuming that it's possible to do that. Do you have the moral authority to do that? And then do you have the moral authority to decide when that copy dies? Does it, once it starts existing, take on that moral authority?
1: Yeah, the and which is kind of kind of seems analogous to the relationship of parents and children, Uh, creating a a new life form that has its own consciousness but's made from the same stuff as you. So, I think I think similar similar intuitions might apply, although there there are obviously differences. Uh,
2: Mm -hmm. I feel like this might be the point uh, in maybe it's a little late for this, but (laughs) the point in the control over our consciousness episode when we might. Well, I'll throw it to you, actually, Sarah. Like, what okay. do you have like a personal theory of consciousness? There's not a lot of agreement on what consciousness is, or mm-hmm. where it comes from, um, or even like I think how to define it. And so, I mean, we all understand our own consciousness and what that means. And so, I think it's easy to fall back on the idea: well, of course, you should control that. But when we start talking about policies and rights that affect other people's consciousness, like yeah. like what is consciousness to you?
1: Well, that's, that's exactly what I think is most important about consciousness, that what makes human consciousness special uh, is our self-awareness from the perspective of others. I think that uh, many other animals share, share awareness and, and even to some degree self-awareness. Humans are probably the only ones who imagine themselves from the perspectives of, of other beings who... Uh, sort of simulate other people in their own mind like I imagine what you're thinking about me uh, and that's that's what I think the special kind of human consciousness is uh, Philippe Rochat in his book Others in Mind uh, talks about this from a developmental perspective of how we uh, how we come to be human and that's partially we're, we're caused to be human by other people uh, kind of thinking about us and talking about us and forcing us to think about ourselves from from their perspective, uh, and so consciousness is from from the very base this kind of group shared thing, and uh, a lot of a lot of the things that that we've talked about are pretty uh, seem kind of the the individual liberty idea, uh, but I think that's it's it's too simplistic kind of because. Humans, The the, the proper group of humans to think about is not an individual human. I think humans exist as a group uh, before they existed, or in a more important way than they exist individually. Uh, There's there's not really any lone humans walking around. Uh, Even uh, the the hermit is a a social role and exists in reference to some kind of social group. So uh, when we're thinking about consciousness, uh, we have to be thinking about multiple people at a time rather than just one person. And so while, while most of my, my ethical intuitions come from a pretty libertarian perspective, um, I do think that's it's too reductionist that what people are is, is uh, primarily a group and only then individuals within the group.
2: So that's sort of a, a social theory of consciousness, and mm-hmm. at least yes. for humans, that the consciousness that we care about only arises yes. in groups. That's interesting. I hadn't yeah. actually... Yeah, and what
1: what you are talking about earlier, uh, about what what makes a simulation real is if there's multiple people in it, or sorry, what makes a, a mm-hmm. virtual reality world real would be if there's real people in it that we're interacting with, what makes it social, and I think that's very deeply true.
2: Right, and that would imply something about when we might consider like a simulated person uh, to be mm-hmm. conscious and deserving of rights would have something to do with how they're interacting with us and how ah, yes. we're modeling them and they're modeling us. And mm-hmm. it, it's a tricky question. Cause I mean, there's like, <laughs> I, I think, you know, I'm not sure. I totally agree in the sense that like, I, I imagine a person born in total isolation might still have some of the qualitative experience that we consider to be, conscious um mm-hmm. but since we don't yeah, really Yeah not have... necessarily
1: using that as an exclusion for it to that uh nothing that doesn't have this type of consciousness should have rights um certainly not but yeah it's that's that's what i think is special about human consciousness dolphins seem to have a little bit of it but
0: <laughs> <laughs> dolphins seem to have a little bit of a lot of human characteristics yeah. right well maybe maybe someday we'll uplift them and uh they can tell us oh. what they uh what they've been thinking
1: Indeed. give them hands <laughs>
0: If they, if they develop opposable thumbs, though, we're all in trouble, right? Then we the, are yeah. going to go watch out. I would love to see a dolphin speak at the UN. Yes, yeah, so a dolphin speaking at the UN would be a great yeah. great scene in like a sci-fi uh, story or something. Somebody steal that from us. So I want to throw a quote at you that I pulled from your book because it just it tickled me so much, uh, which is this idea of if human life were a video game, would anyone play it? Talk about that and how that relates to the simulation to you.
1: There's a, there's a game designer. I can't think of his name right now, but he uh, his, he does, he does, uh, you probably know who I'm talking about. He does like sort of art games, but interesting, um, interesting, uh, sort of stunt games. He made cow clicker, I think cookie clicker, but the, oh,
2: right, the game right.
1: was, a it was a simulation of being, a um, a Kinko's copies employee and you <laughs> never leveled up. You never got any better. You just always had the same amount of work coming in. And, uh, and I think a lot, a lot of human life, unfortunately, uh, uh, represents that as maybe not not a very good game, not very <laughs> not very, very interesting complex. simulation.
0: Um, yeah, yeah,
1: and especially maybe maybe especially sort of atomized post industrial life. But I think I think the internet is is offering some new narrative possibilities for people to have maybe more more satisfying life games. So, yeah, uh, yeah,
0: yeah. The internet yeah. itself seems like it may be a video game that quite a lot of people are playing yeah (laughs) so i guess and
1: and a ritual definitely i definitely also think most most internet use is ritual and not again not in a in a bad way but in a a sense that we're we're, uh, engaging in a in a group hypnosis to to change mental states as a group and to do rhythmic rituals such as typing together and (laughs) there's, there's things like scapegoating on the internet so definitely definitely a ritual community
2: the the quote, the, if human life were a video game, would anyone play it, like, really drives home for me, like, and I think that you intended it to do this, like, the <laughs> issue of, like, is life itself valuable? Because you can reframe that to be, if your human life <laughs> yes. were a video game, would you choose to play it? And then if the answer is no, then that's very troubling. <laughs> but, that, but that sort of might upend your uh, sort of assumptions about life being, you know inherently valuable right, inherently all the precious. time no matter what uh, yeah. but really I think if you were in a lobby and you could sort of had a menu of different human lives to choose from mm-hmm. to live uh, I'm sure you could find one that would be a great game to play although it might not That'd be-, be awesome Let's do that. Yeah, <laughs> it might not be the one that you would first think, right? Like I think indeed, you, you indeed. might think, uh, oh, the celebrity with this wild life would be the good game to play, but perhaps their their mood is terrible all the time. You know, it might be that the yeah. best video game is the yeah. The,
1: so so far, the housewife game is the best game that I've played. <laughs> I wouldn't have thought that until until trying it myself.
0: Uh, it sounds like it <laughs> sounds like a good game to me. Um, but I, I'm a homebody, so. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> in an ideal world, uh, assuming that a far future immersive VR metaverse is something that's going to happen, uh, mm. what rights do you think we should have in that world over our consciousness? And and what do you think should, should not be rights, but should rather be more like, closer to like a product that must be bought or licensed, right? Uh, there's obviously the possibility uh, in a Immersive VR space to create, you know, a lot of suffering and to trap people in the world they're in and not let them get back out to the lobby and pick the next world. Uh, there's the possibility of doing all kinds of things that might be uh, frightening or creepy or terrible. There's also the possibility of, um, you know, limiting how much pain people can feel so that yeah. no one can well, I feel. Would,
1: I would want people to have the right to experience as much pain as they want. Uh, I think I would. I would even want people to be able to. Uh, put themselves into a simulation for a number of years and say, I, you know, I don't want to have the right to get out of it. Uh, but I, I think it comes down to uh, writing the contracts well. Of course, that's <laughs> that's easier said than done. But the things like what can be experienced, uh, what they what they do want provided, what they don't want provided, I think that would kind of be up to the person. We might find that there's a lot of regularities that one kind of person mostly wants this particular package of things. Um, as you said, what what should be provided versus what should, what maybe must be earned. That has to do with how how satisfying of a game it is. Maybe if if sort of everything is is easily obtainable, then with the with the human mind, at least maybe it's not any fun. We have these we have the need to engage in certain behaviors and and overcome some kind of difficulty in order to to feel satisfied. Uh, so I want I want people to have the opportunity to do that, but that's going to be different for everyone.
0: It it was interesting to me to think about you know pleasure and pain being things that could be either provided or not provided. Cognition, you know, the ability to think, um, perception, uh, of course, the ability to stop or start the simulation. All of those are potentially things that I think you might make an argument should be provided
1: social belonging maybe social the belonging one. Yeah, yeah absolutely
0: uh, that's another one that, and that's
1: another one where maybe if you don't earn it it doesn't feel as satisfying so yeah
0: and it might actually not be possible to exactly. provide it without <laughs> earning it uh, uh, unless you're willing to violate the Except rights of box. others right yeah. because you'd have to be potentially forcing those social peers into that relationship with the subject Indeed. person
2: i mean this goes back to the issue of consciousness right because if consciousness it can be separated from the behavioral traits of a social being, if those, if it's possible to right, separate right, those right. things, which you can maybe. simulate, which is right. very speculative, that right. may not. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> then you could create, you know, AI friends for somebody that don't have the ethical implications of conscious beings that you yeah. then shouldn't be bossing around. Yeah, uh, but that's, I mean, we're into totally crazy. They're territory. already
1: getting pretty good at that. Well, there's some there's some
0: indication that it might be possible. We'll put it that way, yeah. right? Yeah, no, and I don't. The, the four
1: legged kind, especially.
0: Uh huh. That's those true. Those are very
1: satisfying. That's me.
0: true. Yeah, of course, pets uh, <laughs> yeah. are going to be a lot easier to simulate than persons. Oh yeah, I didn't mean. Um, well, just in
1: case right. anybody out there didn't catch the reference, <laughs> that's why. I was... Well, those are yeah. arguably
2: like yeah. conscious, but they. I mean, certainly oh, in the case which, of dogs, yeah. they they seem to enjoy just.
1: your presence. They're our partner species. They're
2: not very demanding. uh, Yes.
0: Well, it doesn't, you don't seem to have to uh, harm the dog in any significant way to get it to be your pet, and it does seem to provide that social belonging. Like, it does seem to fulfill the the pack animal needs that we have in a way that works for people. So uh, yeah, that's a great idea that everybody should be provided with AI pets. That's I'm going to yeah. just go ahead
1: and people, say that. People seem to be afraid of the idea that that uh, AIs might get better than us at being our friends and that people wouldn't really need each other anymore. And I think it's, it's not scary to me because that seems like sort of an ideal situation where You could totally have the choice and all your needs are met. That also feels
2: like the same fears that we've gone through again and again, like in the early days of the Internet. uh, And I mean, as you know, very recently, even, you know, you have a lot of these like opinion pieces and articles that come out that talk about how atomized we are. And, you know, we're, you know, all on our phones and stuff Mm -hmm. like people fretting about the fact that, you know, maybe everybody's retreating into a little. Yeah. And nobody
1: knows their neighbors, which is kind of sad.
2: But I, but I mean, at the same time, it seems like totally not even true. It just seems like yeah. a, a fear that re, reoccurring fear that we have.
0: Right. I think yeah. this has more to do with what we value that we fear that than than necessarily <laughs> that it's actually the case. It seems to me, anyway, uh, that the you know the the phone phenomenon, the computer phenomenon, is connecting me with more people, yourself included, of course, <laughs> um, than I would have ever been connected with uh before that technology was available. Um I, I, I definitely think that we're getting better, not worse in that regard. Uh and I would personally be um loath to live in a say pre industrial society where oh, the definitely. nearest town was a day's ride away. Um uh-huh. and uh I, you know, only knew yeah. twenty people and uh, you know Yeah, I,
1: I definitely feel the same way. I don't I don't want to, to have <laughs> cholera, no Wi Fi, but but at the same time, i'm I'm sympathetic to wanting to preserve the best of the sort of pre-industrial world of things like singing together as a group, silly things like that, and you know doing doing little group rituals and uh, being being together physically as well as as well as on the internet. So
2: yeah, we have to be honest about our social <laughs> needs. Right? Yes, we, yeah. can't, we can't just engineer them out. In fact, we have to design them in. I think <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
1: Maximizing fun.
2: Yes, 100% agreement there.
0: Well, thank you very much for coming on the show, Sarah. I want to give you an opportunity now before we wrap to plug your book or anything else you want to plug, um, your websites or anything like that.
1: Okay, well, my book is called Every Cradle is a Grave, Rethinking the Ethics of Birth and Suicide. And my 17-year-old friend made fun of the title because it's so serious <laughs> and dark. Um uh, it does sound a my, bit goth.
0: I'm not going <laughs> to lie, but I I've read about a half of the book and I can say I really recommend it. It's it's real an interesting read and very well written.
1: Oh, thank you. And my website is the View from Hell. I also I'm doing a ongoing uh, residency at the blog Ribbon Farm, uh, Venkat Rao's blog called Ribbon Farm. So that's uh, that's one project. And um, I, I have another group blog called Carcinization that's that does pretty fun stuff about consciousness and stuff.
0: I can recommend all of those uh, sources. I've I've looked through all of them, and uh, if you're on Twitter, I recommend you follow Sarah uh, at the View from Hell. She tweets good stuff. And um, thanks so much for being on the show. I hope we can uh, have you come back sometime and talk about some of the other things you work on. Thank you so much for having me. It's been very fun.
2: So thanks for listening to our podcast with Sarah Perry. Just in case this wasn't clear. Uh, Although I share a last name with her, we are in no way related. Not Perry. that we know anyhow. Uh, Perry just happens to be a very common last name as I find on the internet all too frequently. <laughs> um, but, uh, we just want to remind our listeners that, uh, we could use your support, uh, in terms of iTunes and Stitcher reviews. Uh, if you like the podcast and you've been listening, uh... But also, uh, you know, please let us know what you think. You know, send us an email. Uh, it's feedback at com.
0: Yeah, or you can tweet at us at RTF underscore podcasts.
2: And specifically, I think we've been trying different things. Obviously, we have a ton of guests on now. Uh, a lot of different types of guests. So if you like something that we're doing or don't like something that we're doing give us that feedback you know because we're, we're experimenting and we want to keep making the show better
0: yeah that definitely helps us uh keep the topic suggestions coming and things like that we really appreciate it um and thanks very much for listening we'll see you in two weeks to subscribe or leave a comment on this episode please visit reviewthefuture.com you can also send emails to feedback at review thanks for listening